Well, good morning. I'm Stephen, the pastor here. and want to invite you to turn in your bulletin. Uh, there's a place there where you can take notes. Um, there's a verse, there's a passage that we're going to be looking at it, it, in pieces throughout this message. Um, and I uh, want to start just by letting you remember that we're in a series called Complex, Meeting God in the Mess of Life. And um, this is an appropriate title for the series and for this message, because I think this sermon is going to be complex. Um, this sermon is going to stretch you and stretch your thinking. Um, this sermon is going to be dealing with an issue that churches and Christians and even people outside of the church have been arguing over and debating over and trying to find answers to. There's a mystery that we're going to dive into. We're going to dive into the mess of some of what the Bible teaches about a very important subject, and uh, and it's going to stretch you intellectually. It's going to stretch your brain, um, but I think you can handle it. Um, it's important for us to look at some of these deeper things because if the Bible talks about it, um, we should make an effort to understand it, but also because our lives are can be so frustrating, especially when we don't understand why God doesn't do what he's supposed to do, right? Or when we don't know what's our responsibility versus what's God's responsibility. And so we're going to dive into this subject today, um, and I hope that... Uh, I, I, I hope that you are ready to, to, to think today. Um, last week, we talked specifically about free will. Um, we talked about the, the problems that we experience in life. They're not God's fault, although so often we're tempted to blame God or get mad at God or get frustrated with God. Um, but actually, the, the brokenness of life, the mess of life, is so often the fault of the collective human race that has walked away from God. In big ways or sometimes just in small ways, um, all of us have used the freedom that we have to walk away from God and to do whatever it is that we want. Um, and when we use our freedom to do things that are evil, God's response is, look, this isn't my fault, but I'm here to help. Yeah, that's what we talked about last week. And um, oftentimes our experience of God follows a general pattern, okay? This isn't the exact cookie-cutter model for every person, but there's a general pattern that we tend to follow, and this is our experience. Um, it starts off with us just living life, right? We're living our lives, um, and then all of a sudden, there's something wrong. We recognize that something's wrong in our lives. We feel guilty, um, or we maybe have an addiction that we can't kick, we can't get rid of, uh, or we're generally dissatisfied with life, Okay, and the Bible describes this, the Bible discusses this in Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world. And so something goes wrong, or we recognize that something is wrong in our lives. Well, then third, we learn, we, we hear the gospel, okay? We hear the gospel and we learn that God's answer to the brokenness of life is Jesus, uh, his answer to our guilt, our addictions, our dissatisfaction is Jesus. John 3.16, this is a verse that a lot of people know. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And so we hear this good news that God has done something about what's wrong in our lives. And what he's done is he sent Jesus and so then, sometimes it happens right away, but sometimes we hear the gospel and it's not until much later that we do the fourth step, which is that we have faith. 
There's a point at which, if you're a Christian, you've you committed yourself to following Jesus. Okay, Romans 10.9 describes it. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Okay, and so then we experience new life. Okay, we experience God and life improves. Okay, so it's sometimes the things that were wrong aren't wrong anymore in our lives. Sometimes those things get fixed. Um, sometimes the improvement in our lives is that we're still dealing with the same stuff that we were dealing with before that was wrong, but now we're not alone. Uh, but now we have God with us to give us assurance and comfort in the midst of our struggle, and that is an improvement. Okay, and so Ephesians 1, 3 and 2, 10 describe this. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so when you commit to Jesus, when you have faith in Jesus, God opens up the heavens and through his Holy Spirit pours out all the blessings of heaven on you into your life. And then Ephesians 2, 10 says, For we now are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so we have these five steps that can characterize most people's experience in terms of becoming a Christian. Most people have had some version, especially well, folks who commit to Jesus later on in life as adults have some version of this experience. And then we cycle through these sort of steps throughout our lives. Now, kids who grow up in the church sometimes never know a day when they didn't believe in Jesus. Some of our kids grow up believing in Jesus from just, they always have believed in Jesus. And so for them, they often have the repeated cycle of steps two through five uh, as their relationship with God grows. So, so far so good, right? This is kind of what we've experienced. We get it. We can connect to this. Um, if you're not a Christian, this is generally what happens uh, when you become a Christian, or the process that people go through to become a Christian. Well, then you're part of the church, and somehow you get a Bible, uh, and you begin to read the Bible, or you come to church, you hear sermons, or you show up in a small group, in one of our life groups, and you begin to talk about the Bible, and you come across other verses than the ones I've just shown you. You come across other verses that describe how someone becomes a Christian, but describes it a little bit differently. And not a little bit differently, but a lot differently. And so there are other verses that describe God's actions in someone becoming a Christian. And so let me show you some of these. I'm going to show you God's actions now. And so this is another set. So if you wrote down those five things, here's another set of five things that we're going to look at. That God's actions start with election. And that God, before time, before time began, God chose some people to be his people. Okay, Ephesians 1, 4 and 5 says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And so God elects us before the world was even made. God elected some people. Well, then there's this work of conviction that Chad talked about earlier in the service. Um, this is where God convinces people that sin isn't good. Okay, in John 16, verses 7 and 8, this is Jesus talking. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. 
For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And so we see here that God actually convicts us. When we feel convicted, it's because God is actually working in our lives. Okay, then God takes the action of redemption. And in this, God sends Jesus to save people. Okay, so God did this. He sent his son to save people. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Okay, so while we were still apart from God, while we were still away from God, while we still wanted nothing to do with God, while we were doing our own thing, God sent his son uh, and died for us. Then God does something called regeneration. And this is where God renews hearts and minds. He reaches into our hearts and changes us from the inside out. And this is actually the first three verses in the bulletin. In Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 6, it says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, here it is, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so this is God changing us. This is us laying dead in the grave, spiritually speaking. God bringing us to life. He made us alive together with Christ. And so this is something God does. And then the fifth thing he does is provides forgiveness, where God forgives and adopts us. And this is also in your bulletin. This is Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so, we initially, we describe, so, so this is this other set of five things that God does, right? So we've got our experience, Right? We have life, wrong, gospel, faith, and then new life. That's what we experience. But then, now, when we look at the rest of the Bible, we see that these other things, we see that God has been acting throughout this entire process. And so we see God's actions over here on the other side. Right? So we've got election, conviction, redemption, regeneration, and forgiveness. And the question is, how do these things fit together? Right? As we read the Bible, we see these things and we wonder, well, so what exactly is going on? Am I choosing God or is God choosing me? And as we study, as we look, as we try to bring these verses together, because the same God inspired all of these verses that describe both our experience and His actions. Okay, And so as we read the Bible more carefully, Actually, what we find is that our experience is not one, two, three, four, and five. Okay? Our experience is a little bit different. Our experience is actually two, four, six, eight, and ten. You know where I'm going? Some of you do. Um, and so our experience actually is two, four, six, eight, and ten. And God's actions are actually 1, 3, 5, 7, 
and 9. The point of this, what the Bible teaches in its biggest picture, is that God's work always comes first. God's work always comes first, and our experience is actually a response to what God does as an expression of his love. And so God loves us, and so he acts, and we respond to God's love. So one way that I've heard this said is is this way, that at the gate of the new heavens and earth, right, when God brings heaven and earth together in an embodied, mind-blowingly wonderful experience where heaven and earth come together, um, there is a sign. There's a sign at the gate of the new heavens and earth. And it's a sign that echoes a verse in John chapter 6, verse 37. And it says this. It says, whoever thirsts, let him come and drink. So whoever thirsts, it's talking about spiritual thirst, right? If you have a sense that spiritually speaking, you are parched and you want to take a drink from the well of Jesus, if you want God, if you want to know him, if you want to experience God in your life, if something is wrong in your life, if it's sin, if it's guilt, if it's shame, if it's brokenness, if it's addiction, whatever it is, if you want God to enter into your life and to relieve that, to improve it, to come near to you, if you are tired of living your life apart from God, without God, where you feel a little bit aimless or purposeless, or you wonder if like, actually there's a reason why we're alive, if you wonder any of that, if you have any sense of thirst, and you want God to quench it, then you may come and drink. That's the sign outside of God's kingdom. That God's family and his kingdom is open to anyone who wants to come. And people have been coming for thousands of years. People have felt that sense of thirst and they have come and they have put their faith in Jesus. They've sensed that something's wrong. They've heard the gospel and they've said, yes, Jesus, I want you. Jesus enters into their life and life begins to change. Life begins to improve. And so people enter in to the gate of the new heavens earth. They enter into a relationship with God. And this sign is interesting because it's unique because it actually has something written on the back of this sign. Right? So on the front of the sign it says, whoever thirsts, let him come and drink. But on the back of this sign it says, chosen before the world was created. In your experience, you have this sense that something is wrong, but Jesus is an answer. And so you say, okay, I'm going to believe in Jesus. And so you enter into a relationship with Jesus. You enter into the family of God. And as you enter in, you are, you experience God. You experience joy. You experience a measure of happiness. You see God working in your life. You become part of a community of people that are helping you, that are helping you to grow, that you're experiencing life with them. Right? And at some point, as you're experiencing this new life that comes in a relationship with God, you kind of like you're glancing around at this, at this kingdom of God thing, this family of God, and you notice the sign, and you go, huh, God chose me before the world was created. I had no idea. 
I didn't know I was chosen, but now I find out that actually I was. And so we have these two ideas, right? These two things that we've seen are taught in Scripture. And my question is why? Why does the Bible speak in these two ways that kind of sometimes seem to contradict each other? Right? How do we make sense of this? We've got our experience where we are choosing God versus God's actions where God seems to choose us. This is complicated. This is complicated, not just because uh, of a struggle to understand how salvation works, but I think that this is also a microcosm. This is where I may speak over your heads, and if I do, I'm sorry, but I'll bring it back in, don't worry. But I do think that this question of how salvation works is an example of the way that lots of things work in our lives, where we get confused about, okay, God, We'd like to see you do something here, but it feels like, like, do you want, is it my responsibility to get this done or is it yours? Right? I've got friends that I want to see know you. I want them to come to believe in you. I've got a family member. I've got a spouse or I've got children that have walked away. Right? God, I want them back. I want them to return. Like, is this your deal or is this mine? Do, or, or, or do they need to choose you or can I beg you to choose them? And why wouldn't you choose them? And if you choose, right? And so there's a lot of issues that this, I think, speaks to. And as we've seen here, the Bible actually teaches both. And it teaches both very clearly. Um, there's a set of verses in the Bible that emphasizes our need to choose to commit to Jesus. Okay, And then there's another set of verses in the Bible that emphasize God's election that God chooses. Um, and it tells us, because if our free will is left alone, then every non-Christian will never choose God. Bunch of negatives in that phrase, right? So that no non-Christian would ever choose God if his or her free will was left untouched. And again, the question is like, what's going on here? Is God trying to confuse us? Is this, I mean, is God trying to make us confused here? Here's my best effort to try to answer this question. Here's my best effort having lived in the complexity of this mess. Having lived in the difficulty. And honestly, I'll tell you what, like I have had seasons of my life, years of my life, where I've been very comfortable just living in... Actually, my experience has been that at first, all I learned about was our experience. Because I had my experience, and that was all. Like, I saw the verse that talked about my experience. And for years, I didn't even know that there was a backside of the sign, <laughs> you know, at the gate of heaven. Um, and then I began to read the Bible, and as I read the Bible, I thought, huh, wait, wait, what is election here? What does this mean? And I began to understand, wait, wait, there's this other set of verses and I'll tell you what, here's what I did. I actually flip-flopped. So I went from only emphasizing the verses that talk about us choosing God, and I exclusively wrapped my arms and my heart and my mouth around all the verses that just talk about God choosing us. And I knew those verses still existed, so I just sort of changed what they meant. I just sort of like reworked them and they didn't say what it seemed like they said because I had this other explanation because these verses had to be true and they couldn't both be true. So there I was stuck. Well, so 
Now, I mean, I've been doing this now for 26 years, walking with Jesus. Um, I've been reading the Bible for that whole time. And so my best effort to try to bring these things together, and lots of people try to do this, so I'm, the reason I'm not speaking authoritatively, I'm not saying, well, here's exactly how the Bible says it's because there's lots of opinions about this. And while I think that what I have to say is the best bringing together of the most verses in the Bible that talk about this issue, I realize that there are other people that have different formulations of this. And so I don't want to, I don't want to end a conversation. You know, if you want to talk more about this, let's start a conversation about this. So, but here's my answer. How do these things work? Um, how does this work? I think the answer is that these are two complementary perspectives describing how salvation works. Okay? These are two complementary perspectives. Each set of verses gives us truth and guidance for different pastoral purposes. So each of these sets of verses communicate truth that different people need to know at different times in their lives for different purposes. Okay? What do I mean by that? Well, take... And so, so actually, what I think we need to do is, it's not our experience versus God's actions. It's our experience and God's actions. We need to see these things as complementary. And there are times when we want to emphasize our experience there are other times we want to emphasize God's actions. I could say it differently. There are times when the Bible wants to emphasize our experience. And there are other times when the Bible wants to emphasize what God has done, the actions of God. So the Bible emphasizes our experience and our choosing God when people need to be reminded that the only thing standing between them and experiencing God is them getting off their butts and committing to follow Jesus. Okay? Do you know anybody like this? Do you know anybody who is really just sort of sitting around waiting for God to zap them? Do you know anybody who has everything that they need to take action in a Godward direction, and they just aren't? Well, these people, and there are times when I am one of these people, um, these people need to be reminded. You don't need to wait for God to zap you. If you want to experience God in your life, just commit to following Jesus. The Bible uses the term repent, and to repent just means turn the direction of your life away from sin and toward Jesus. That's what it means. Take action and you will experience God. And there are times when we need to hear this, right? Now, on the other hand, the Bible emphasizes God's actions and God's choosing when it's giving Christians comfort that they don't have to earn their salvation. This is also big. Um, God's actions show us that he saves us that he has done everything that we need to be forgiven and adopted into his family. This is why it's good news. We can never be good enough for God, but God's actions and God's choosing of us prove that we don't have to be good enough because Jesus was already good enough for us. 
He died to redeem us from our sins. He died to regenerate us. He rose again to bring us both forgiveness and new life. And there are times when we need to hear this. But there are times you have, there's people in your life who feel like they're just not good enough, who feel like no matter how hard they try, they're just not measuring up to God's standard. Um, there are times when people feel guilty, they feel shame, they feel like God just can't love them after what they've done. And these people, these people need to hear that, you know what, let me just tell you that though you chose God at some point, He chose you long before. That yes, you've committed to Jesus and that's fantastic, but Jesus has lived and died for you. Your salvation is not based on your performance. It's based on Jesus' performance. And the resurrection was God's stamp of approval on his perfect life. So his record is now yours. You know people who need to hear this. And sometimes I need to hear this. So do you. And so we need both of these perspectives. Okay, one without the other does not do justice to the Bible, and it actually ends up hurting our lives. Okay, there's a, a group of people, some of you have heard this term, um, some of you haven't, um, but people who are Arminian. Okay, Arminian, not Armenian, but Arminian. They're followers of a guy named Jacobus Arminius from the... 1600s, I think. Um, Arminian theology just embraces the human side, our experience. Um, and if you embrace the human side only, if you only embrace our, our experience, it can lead to thinking that all of your spiritual life is up to you. Okay? And it, you might do well for a while because you might be performing really well, um, but this view means that it's completely your experience of God is completely dependent on what you do or fail to do. And so your spirituality will fluctuate based on your performance. If you've ever felt this way, like where you had a good day because, um, you know, you spent time with God, you might have read, you might have prayed in the morning, you know, and so you go into work or you go to school and you interact with a friend or a colleague or a coworker, and you feel confident that God's going to bless you because you spend time with him in the morning. Right? You feel like you've earned this. Right? And so you go into that conversation. You might bring up Jesus because you're like, hey, I've, I've done good today, so God's going to bless this. Right? Um, or you'll have a day where, you know what, you, you overslept, you hit the snooze button two or three times too often or too many times, um, and so you're rushing. You didn't get to spend any time with God. You were rushing um, get, to get to work, get to school, and you have this same conversation. You think, I'm just going to keep my mouth shut because God can't bless me because God's pretty frustrated with me because I didn't spend time with him. This morning, there's lots of versions of that, um, but this is what happens when you just embrace the human side, our perspective or our experience side of things. This is incredibly debilitating over time um, because, man, this leads you to conceive of your spiritual life as a rat race. It's an unending wheel of obedience that leaves you constantly tired and without assurance or peace if you are not performing at the level that you believe God requires. You can't have a healthy, vibrant, loving relationship with God. He will always be perceived as a boss or as a father who's never satisfied. 
And so you can't live very long just with the our experience side of things. Now, if you embrace the God side only, um, something else happens. It actually can lead you to think that what you do doesn't actually matter. It can lead you to think that what you do doesn't mean anything. Because you know what? God's going to do everything anyways. God's the one who's in charge of making sure everything that's supposed to happen is going to happen. And so what you do don't, doesn't matter. And people who do this end up very lackadaisical when it comes to their spiritual lives. Um, and then they wonder, why does God seem so far? Why does it feel like Christianity is just sort of a rote sort of thing? It's just sort of a, I go through the motions and I sort of do stuff, but not much. Um, and it makes people really lackadaisical when it comes to prayer and evangelism. Because God's just going to take care of it. He's chosen these folks. They're going to get saved. What I do doesn't matter. So I think denying the divine perspective, it really dishonors God. Because it doesn't acknowledge what God has done and what God is doing in salvation. But to deny the human perspective... Uh, tends to result in us not serving our neighbors and helping them understand that the Bible calls them away. It, it calls them to live and commit to God. And so I think the solution here, right, the solution is really to bring these things together. The solution is, is a harmony. Um, the Bible teaches us to think about these two different perspectives and to hold them together in tension. And again, I ask why. Um, and like one thought that I've had is I feel like the human perspective, our experience, it's really a different perspective. It's the perspective of what gets you into a relationship with God. Okay? It shows you clearly what your responsibilities are, and it displays the good news that you need to know to believe in Jesus. Um, and I think the, the, the God's action side is really the divine perspective that keeps you safe and secure. This perspective reminds you that God is clearly at work in your life so you can trust that you're not on your own, that God is with you. He's holding you in his hands. Um, and it shows you that even while you were seeking him, he was already seeking you. And I think when we see these things as complementary perspectives, it puts us in a place where we can actually read all of the verses in the Bible. Okay? I don't know, if you ever had this experience where you've read a verse in the Bible and you've thought, this makes me uncomfortable. Like, what this means about God sounds not good. Um, what this means about the way life works, I, I, I don't like this. And so there's verses in the Bible maybe that you avoid that you tend to just not think about or you kind of wish weren't there and you sort of see if I could sweep them under the rug. If I just don't look at those pages, um, then maybe I'll be okay. Um, I think understanding this harmony of bringing these things together helps us to be able to read more of the Bible and to embrace it because we're seeing that these are actually just two different perspectives on how we experience salvation. And I want to just zoom in, because we talked about the free will side last week, I want to talk a little bit more about the benefits of the verses that highlight God's actions today. And I want to just give you um, just several things that 
are just points of application so that when you read these verses, um, they can draw you closer to God. And so, um, so I think first, if these are God's actions, election, conviction, redemption, regeneration, forgiveness. First, these verses in the Bible help us to know God better. Okay? You get to see what God actually does. And so I'm, I'm guessing that there are some of you here today that did not know that God did all these things. And now you do. You realize now that God has done these five things in every person who is a Christian, for every person who is a Christian. And each one of these things teaches us something about God. Right? Election means that God is the kind of God who doesn't wait for us. But he initiates. He goes first. That's important to know about God. Right? Conviction means that God cares so much about us that he doesn't want us to destroy our lives by making bad decisions. It's important to know that about God. Like Chad said, he doesn't do this to condemn us. He doesn't convict us to condemn us, but he convicts us to set us free. Redemption means God doesn't expect us to fix ourselves before we come to him. Isn't that good news? Because there's people in your life, right, where you can't go back to that relationship until you fix the thing that they have a problem with in your life. God's not that way. Redemption means that you know, you can come as you are and God will embrace you exactly as you are. And regeneration means God won't leave you that way. right? Regeneration shows us that God is the kind of God who changes us from the inside out and forgiveness means that God is a God of extravagant grace. So these are truths about God that you can know and you can learn and these are actions that God has taken toward you um, in his relationship with you if you're a Christian. These are things that are true about God. Sometimes if you're exploring Christianity, coming to church, it's almost like going on a blind date with Jesus, right? Where you're learning more about him, right? You're here and you're like, okay, I'm kicking the tires of Christianity. I'm spending time with Jesus. I'm trying to find out who he is and what he's like. Well, this is what he's like. He's someone who chooses. He's someone who leads us away from the stuff that destroys us. He's someone who comes to us as we are, doesn't need us to get cleaned up or fixed, but he then gives us his power and he renews us from the inside out and he forgives us. I want to spend more time with a person like that. And so these things help us know God better. Um, they also move us to worship. They move us to worship. Because, you know what? We would not have chosen God if he hadn't chosen us first. And God has chosen us. And it's not just that he chose us, but after he chose us, he then sent his son. He himself came in Jesus and offered his life and died for us. And Jesus, in all of his perfection, takes his perfect heart and his perfect mind and gives it to us. Right? He regenerates us. He forgives us. He redeems us. He does all these things. And these things move us to worship. Man, whatever God wants from me, I'm going to give it to him because of all that he's done for me in Jesus. Right? So this moves us to worship. It highlights God's grace because we didn't do anything to deserve any of this. God acted unilaterally out of his love, out of his free and extravagant grace. 
And so these actions lead us to worship a God who loves us just because he's loving. And he loves us with such a personal love that he can make us feel like sometimes we are the only person on earth. And if we were the only person on earth, he still would have come and died for us. This makes us humble because we have nothing to boast about except in Jesus and in what he's done for us. Seeing God's actions also give us a reason to pray. Because guess what? If God doesn't do these things, then why are we talking to him about what this person needs to do? Right? If God doesn't change people, if God doesn't take action in people's lives, then we're like, God, will you please save this person? Will you please let them come become Christians? And God's like, hey, it's up to them. They've got to choose. I don't have anything to do with this. I mean, if they choose me, then yeah, I'll totally bless their life. But, you know, but understanding that God's act, God acts in salvation, that God brings us to himself, moves us to pray. It makes sense to appeal to God, not only when we want to see people become Christians, but we want to see people change. We want to help them. We can appeal to God to work in their lives. And then lastly, this gives us confidence. This gives us confidence because if this is what God does, we know that he is for us. God is on our side. Um, he is working with us. And this makes us bold and powerful. 1 John 4, 4 says, Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. As powerful as the forces of temptation and sin and the devil are, there is a power in you that's even stronger. And you can have confidence in that. That we overwhelmingly conquer through Jesus who has loved us. And this gives us hope. This gives us hope in the confidence, right? We have hope because when we can't do what he wants us to do, when we can't be what he wants us to be, we know that he loves us anyways. We know that sometimes victory as a Christian just means being honest with God that we are still failing and yet we're holding on to Jesus and his forgiving cross. And these things give us confidence. Friends, I hope that you can see the power of this. I hope that you can see just the amazing benefit and who God, like what this means about God and who he is. What these things do for us is it brings together like ultimately God's purpose. Because God is the one who has created the world to look this way and created these two different perspectives. Um, and God's underlying or overarching, his foundation or the banner over all of this, um, his purpose in these two perspectives is this. That because of these two perspectives, human vocation is restored and renewed. Human vocation is restored and renewed. What does that mean? Well, human vocation, like God made us to be in a relationship with him and to rule over the earth. God gave us incredible power and incredible authority so that we would lead our section of this earth. We would exert our strength and our power and our perspective and our wisdom to 
tend our garden and make it flourish, to defend our portion of, of this world and to defend it from evil. And these two perspectives help us to realize that God still wants us to do this. There is still a significant work that we are called to do as God's children. God would have it no other way. God doesn't want to just save us and then literally have us like laying out on the beach every day for the rest of our lives until we go to heaven someday. God wants us to be fully engaged, to bear his image, and to show the world what God is like through how we treat other people, through how we treat the world that God's called us to live in. That was his design in the beginning. And salvation, these two perspectives, realizing that God has called us to use our will and our desires to engage in this activity, like this is our human vocation restored. This is God's call for us. And we have to know that we're never alone. God is with us every step of the way. And so people who embrace these two perspectives um, are people who are devoted to God and they also live by his love and power and they engage the world around, spreading God's love, spreading God's truth. This is God's call to all of us. This is God's call to all of us. In the midst of the mess of life, these two perspectives remind us that we are made and redeemed by the God who created us and loved us. And that God has called us to fill his world with more of his presence. We're going to spend the rest of the series talking in more specific ways of how we can engage in that activity. But before we do that this week, just hold on to these two perspectives. Hold on to them. Talk to God about them. Be grateful and overwhelmed by his, um, his initiating love. And then engage in your work, engage in your study, engage in your relationships in a way that seeks to love other people the way that he has loved you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that, uh, thanks for not trying to confuse us, but for giving us a truly robust understanding of what our lives mean. God, thank you that we're not alone. Um, we all have made messes of our lives when we have walked away from you and your plan, but we thank you for choosing us, for chasing us, and for bringing us to yourself. Thank you for saving us and restoring in us this vocation to fill the world, to fill the people in our lives with a sense of your presence. God, help us to do that this week and help us to do it together as we encourage and support each other in this work. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.